Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma with a trigger warning for everyone. You may hear us speaking about life experience in this podcast that have meaning for you, that may be difficult to hear, or that may affect your loved ones. As always, we encourage you to seek help from a licensed mental health professional or other healthcare provider with any questions you may have about what you're going through. Everything in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please don't delay seeking help because of something you hear on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. And I'm Bridget Malcolm. And this is Model Mentality, a podcast where we are opening up the dialogue on mental health, one conversation at a time. Welcome to Let's Get Real, where we reflect on our episode with Pamela Bell, provide our takeaways, and discuss mental health as a mother, mental health as a daughter, and emotional health within a family. My takeaway from Pamela's episode was the just the extreme importance of dis, of talking and having open discussions around mental health and around people who might be struggling. I, you know, obviously I come at it from the context of being in the fashion industry where there are a lot of incredibly creative people and, you know, to to be a little, I don't want to say moody, but perhaps you know, at the whim of your own emotions, it's seen as almost like an asset and it's seen like as just a part of your creativity. But the reality is like, there's a lot of people who are struggling often in silence in the fashion world. And, you know, I think it's incredibly important to raise awareness and to destigmatize the conversation around mental health, which is exactly what we do here. And it obviously, you know, it trickles down from far beyond the fashion industry. It's like often, the people who seem to be the most okay are the ones who require the most amount of checking in. Um, so I think it's an incredibly important conversation because, you know, it's okay to not be okay and we're all aware of that. But, you know, how can we support someone who's struggling? Like how can we learn to recognise when someone we care about isn't themselves? And, you know, how can we learn to just hold a space for them that's safe and that they can feel accepted to discuss their feelings with you? I think it's a huge conversation. I think it's an incredibly important conversation. And I think, you know, from Pamela's work um, with the Mental Health Coalition, I think it's one that's starting to become more normalised. I, I hope, you know, I think this is obviously a process, but yeah, this this gave me a lot of hope for the future and yeah, a lot of honour that she was here to talk to us today. Those are my takeaways. What about you, Ali? Yeah, so I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And to step back, if I think about Pamela's episode, what I loved is how we started with her family and how she grew up in a conservative family where emotions and feelings were not discussed. And then she had two siblings who were later diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so let's start there. If we're talking about emotional health, how do we bring that out in people, right? That Saying that it's okay to acknowledge your emotions or you know, it's an important exercise to f- learn how to articulate your emotions, even first to yourself, to have that awareness, and then to speak up about it. And then I think then the flip side is, you know, fast forward to in the episode talking about Katie or Kate Spade and what she's doing with the Mental Health Coalition. Then how do we as observers of our loved ones and friends, how do we then ask the questions and not be afraid to ask about suicide And many other things, you know, if you notice a change in someone, then how do you address it in a way that is not isolating, that is 
confronting in a compassionate way. And then the other person already has the ability to articulate, right? So there's two parts. It's like the internal self and what you're going through and then what you can do to support the other. And that, I think, relationship is really critical. It's it's sort of the essence or the, the beginning, the origin of like healthy emotional health. Uh, and then I think going to advocacy and her work with the Mental Health Coalition, you know, she's trying to, with Kenneth Cole and all of their partners and stakeholders, make mental health accessible, relatable, beautiful. And that's the shame piece because so many people feel bad about just feeling how they're feeling. And how do we normalize that through marketing campaigns, multimedia, you know, inputs? There's so many ways you have to do it internally and then externally. So, you know, I'm just amazed by how, yeah, you take her story, which is a conservative emotional environment, all of her experiences, and now doing what she's doing. I think it's really powerful. So I have a couple of questions for you, Ali, before we dive into the, the clip between Pamela and myself. We talk a lot about um, emotional health, and I'd like to know from your perspective, what is positive emotional health? Like, what is the picture of someone who is in themselves, in their body, and in their emotions, but in a healthy way? It's a really good question. Uh, so first of all, what I want to say is that, let's say the negative spectrum of emotions, meaning anger, frustration, irritable, irritability, those are healthy emotions. So for me, when I think about a positive emotional health or just a healthy balance, it is being able to feel all your feelings and knowing your reaction in the moment to a situation, feeling your reaction, being able to articulate it to yourself. You know, I've worked with a variety of people across the board and there's a, you know, there's one end of the spectrum where you might have people who for a variety of reasons, and that's more complicated, have a situation that actually from the outsider should be stressful, but they don't feel it or they don't know their reaction to it. Now, why that is is that way, that's a longer question and that depends on the individual and who they are and their biology and their psychology. But I think a goal is to get to the point where a situation happens and you understand and feel your reaction. And then the next step is that you're able to articulate it to yourself or to someone else. So that is emotional awareness and mindfulness. And, and I think that's the place to start. Um, if, you know, whoever's listening to this, if you feel like that is difficult for you to achieve, how can you get there? Well, you can start with basic concepts of mindfulness and creating space to feel your emotions, meditation, yoga, breathing. If that doesn't work, you could try a virtual facilitator of meditation like Calm or Headspace. If that doesn't work, I would say work with a therapist to try and sit with your emotions and understand your reactions. And that's where the work can start. What advice would you give to someone, like say you're a loved one, a friend, a family member, you've noticed a change in them, they're not themselves, they're becoming withdrawn and you're worried. What would you, what advice would you give to first the person who is struggling, the person who is withdrawn and also to the persons who's noticed? What separate two sets of advice would you give to each of them? Sure. So, I mean, I think the first thing, and we say this a lot, right, in our various episodes, but how you're feeling, like you're not alone. This is a common experience that a lot of people have, but it can feel so isolating. And, you know, obviously I work with people clinically. So 
let's go to the other first, because I think it's easier to start there. If you notice a change in your loved ones and things like um, if you notice someone is more withdrawn, they're not looking, functioning, feeling and appearing like themselves, or they, you know, they went through a very stressful life event and now you've seen a change in emotions, behavior, how they're doing. Um, or if you notice erratic behavior, which could be uh, a result of so many things. I was just thinking about substance and alcohol, you know, increase in use, um, which can cause, you know, one to feel out of sorts. Um, or if you notice people aren't showing up as much for their life and for you when they had been so long. So essentially, if you notice a change in the baseline of functioning, that's when you as a loved one should take notice and ask. You know, I think a lot of people are afraid to ask or when they notice someone's not doing well, they're walking around eggshells, but what have you got to lose? And usually people who are struggling in that kind of environment want connection, need connection, but there's, there may be a lot of shame or a lot of feelings of confusion about why they're feeling that way. And so then it's hard for them to connect. So you as the loved one connect with that person. And that doesn't mean you need to figure it out for them, but just, you know, ask how they're doing, observe, you know, I noticed like, you don't seem like yourself and I'm just here for you. You know, I, I'm, you don't even say I'm concerned or worried and it depends on your relationship with the person, but I'm here for you if you need to talk, you know, if you, you know, I, I see you, let's hang out, try to meet them for a coffee, but stay connected uh, no matter what their response is, especially if they're a loved one and you know them really well. Now for the person who's struggling, it can be so disconcerting and hard to go through these mental, I'll call it a mental health episode or experience of intense emotions, especially if you haven't experienced that, or especially if you are used to being out there and engaging with life in a certain way. And then all of a sudden you have this overwhelming moment or experience or period of time where you know you don't feel like yourself and things are feeling darker or not as not the same as usual. And I would say, first of all, acknowledge that. Like there is a change and that means some attention needs to be paid to that. Um, and it's okay. This is a human experience. We all go through this at different periods in our life. Let's say times of stress or more serious um, situations. So it's okay to experience this. In fact, if you're human, you should experience intense emotions from time to time. But when that happens, it is so important to get help. Help can be in the form of just talking to someone, asking, you know, for help. Go see your doctor or general practitioner as a first start if it feels too hard to connect with a psychiatrist or therapist, because that often can be very stigmatizing for people. Or listen to other people's stories. Like I know that when people, as people have told me, and we've talked about this, when sometimes when people are down or struggling through a certain experience, it's it can be comforting to hear other stories or a similar shared experience. And you're nodding your head, Bridget, so I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, no, I just, I could not agree with you more. Like when, when I was finally getting into recovery from my eating disorder and like finally starting to come back to life, I... I felt like I'd failed in some way. And I think that was kind of more of a re reflection of the world around us and the unfair um, body standards set by, for women. Um, but I, and so I was feeling a lot of shame about the fact that I, I couldn't maintain it. I couldn't maintain that small size. And, you know, what really helped me was writing about it. And I started a blog and I started writing about 
you know, how I'd gained weight and I was trying to make peace with it and how I was struggling. And I had such an intense reaction from so many of my followers and I got a lot of traffic. And then that kind of was just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like I started to write about, you know, struggles with PMDD when I got on medication, like I just wrote about everything. And yeah, it was, it, I felt so much, so less alone. That's a, that's a sentence. I felt so yeah, whatever. I felt so less alone. You know, I, I had so many people writing in to be like, that was my experience too. I've experienced this, like, here's my story. And I don't know, it was just so humbling to be reminded that like my brain, which tries to tell me that I am the center of the universe and no one could ever understand me and no one could ever know what I was going through really. It kind of got challenged and shut down in a really nice way. Like we're all human. We all exist on a spectrum of wellness and you know, no one's alone, whatever you're feeling, you're not the first person on the planet to feel it. And that means that you can also get better and find your feet again. So yeah, that was really what I was taking away from that, listening to our podcast, listening to like other people's stories. I, I still remember like one night I was probably 19 or 20. I was in London, I want to say, and I was jet lagged and it was before a shoot. And I used to have terrible insomnia, like terrible. And I used to take Xanax in order to get through the night. But, you know, when you take that regularly, it stops working quite as well. And so I remember I was lying there. It was like 3 a.m. I was jet lagged and I was anxious because I was I had a call time in three hours. And I remember I had just Googled on the Internet, like model can't sleep experience. And there was a story that came up. It was on I forget what platform, but it was a model who actually turned out to be a friend of mine further down the line. And she was talking about in an interview about how she couldn't sleep before a shoot and how stressful it was and how she'd call her mum in tears. And I remember just being like, oh, it's not just me. Like, isn't that good? <laughs> not good that she experienced it, but like I felt less alone in that moment. So I think it's incredibly powerful. And I think for people who can talk about it and for whom talking about it won't make things worse or harder, I mean, I think it's a really powerful thing to do for everyone. Agreed. And I think that, you know, that's, yeah, that's my advice. Like if you feel alone and isolated and going through a really difficult emotional experience, even though the tendency is to stay away, withdraw often, that's actually when you need to connect the most. That is what is going to help. And okay, there might be layers of shame and hesitation and all of that in between. So do it in a private way start with our podcast, for example. And there's many other digital resources out there and conversations that are happening where you can do it without actually you speaking, but you listening and being a passive receiver. And maybe that's easier and less stigmatizing if you have feelings about that. Um, so there are a lot of great resources to lean on, Mental Health Coalition being one, which is what we're reflecting on. Um, but what Bridget said, if you're feeling alone, I think I said this in before, like if you're feeling alone, get unalone, right? Try to connect and fill yourself with hope. And if that hope is hard to achieve, because we know that can happen with depression, then that requires, you know, seeking out help. So you can get help also where you can't do it on your own, which is, you know, also part of this process. And, and important to know that it's not a weakness to admit that you need something or need someone or that you are vulnerable, it's a strength. And I think that's a reframe that I work with a lot of people on. Because if you're that kind of person who's top of game and always on and 
you know, can achieve anything when it comes to emotional health and when things are so overwhelming, it's not that same task-oriented, goal-oriented approach. Emotions can overwhelm your ability to have that strength to, to reach that goal. And that's what can feel disconcerting for, let's say, a strong person or a strong-willed person. But in times where you feel that, that strength pull back, um, it is okay to ask for help. So just to segue, you know, we had a conversation with Pamela right after we recorded her episode about roles within the family and how we should be speaking about mental health. And I love this clip because Bridget also asks her specifically about her relationship with her daughter. So have a listen and see what you think. So Pamela, you're a mother. And Bridget, you're a daughter, both two sides of a coin. And what I want to hear from you both is that in those roles within a family, how do you feel we should be talking about mental health from those perspectives? You know, what in your experiences has been said that's helpful and what goes unsaid that's potentially harmful? Yeah, I absolutely love how much of the conversation has been centered around communication and clear lines of communication and how that's kind of begins in the family and like the house that you grew up in. Cause you know, I, I was a kid who was extremely anxious and like, I distinctly remember, I think being as young as six and having terrible anxiety, um, being away from my family and being away from my home and going to school. I just, I felt it all the time unless I was in my, my safe space. But at that age, I didn't know what it was. I didn't have any words to describe it. I didn't, I just thought there was something wrong with me and I just knew that I wanted to be in a place where I didn't feel that way. So it led me to avoid going on sleepovers or avoid doing like extracurriculars like that because I just wanted to be in my, my safe space. And it's, it's interesting because like I, I, mental health didn't enter my conversation until it was kind of like forced in at 25. Prior to then I had been just like dealing with all kinds of different situations and like conditions without any any concept that that was what it was and that therapy would kind of start to help that so it's interesting I guess I'm really curious like for me as a kid I was petrified of being a daughter that wasn't like perfect and I guess that is linked into my own issues but in particular I didn't want to worry my parents like I didn't want to say anything to them I didn't want them to have a daughter who was problematic. And so I guess I'm really curious hearing from your perspective, like what did that look like for you being on the other end with having a child who is struggling? Like how did that feel for you? Oh, that's so, that's such an interesting question. And, and well, I'm sure that my daughter would say something different for sure. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a strange thing because my eldest daughter, Eleanor, it was her 15th birthday and I had a surprise party for her. And leading up to that, she had seemed a little bit sad. Her grandmother had passed away, whom she was very close with. So I thought it was grief. Um, and she really was not happy at her. And she always was very joyous and singing and dancing around and it she just kind of stopped doing a lot of those things when she started high school and she just you know she wasn't happy about the surprise party and I just I was 
I was like, wow, something, something's up. And it scared me actually. Um, cause I didn't really feel like I had the tools or the wherewithal to really handle it. Um, and so I think I froze a little bit and then I started talking to her and eventually we went to, you know, not eventually, but pretty soon we went to a therapist, but you know, she was my oldest and I had not really been in therapy much myself. Um, so it was a, it was a, and we didn't know like, what's the right therapist. The first person that we went to recommended she goes, she went on medication off after a 45 minute meeting. And I thought that was a little bit rash. Um, and so I think that as time went on, you know, my second daughter, I think I was a little more helpful. And then when my son wasn't feeling well at a certain point, like I was all over it. <laughs> you know, I knew I learned by you know, I guess as most mothers do with many things on the third um, child, but I think that it, it was, it was, it was scary because I was, I was afraid for her and I didn't really know how to help her. So I think it was a little frustrating for me, honestly. Do you think you like would have required or it would have been helpful to have a bit of extra support as a parent? Yes. I think that, I mean, I almost feel if Eleanor and I had gone in together, um, we could have, I could have been sort of trained to help her and she could have seen that I was there to support her. Um, but that was not, you know, she was also a teenager with a mom, which is, you know, there's the certain strains that come along with that dynamic. Um, so there was a little bit of like, she was, you know, is it, you know, kind of blaming me a little bit and, you know, it was a, it was a tough time, I think all the way around. What helped you during this time with her? I, you know, I think that it was, we finally came back together after, you know, she wanted to be very private with her. We were, I was also divorced from her father and as much as we got along and were friendly, it was still very painful for Eleanor. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, there was a little bit of a distance and I think we came back together right before she went to college. So it was like a couple of years of sort of strain. And then there was, you know, there was the mental health thing and then there was like going to parties and staying out really late. And then I was worried about the, you know, alcohol and drugs, you know, there was a whole host of things to be worried about of a teenager in New York city. Um, you know, so it was, it was, I can imagine. it was the dark, yeah. the dark days. It was a little ice storm, but, um, you know, we got through it. And then right before she went to college, we, we, we rebonded and, um, you know, it's been a work in progress since. I mean, she's actually on her way out here tonight, driving out to spend the night with me. And, um, you know, it's a lot better. And she's she's now a therapist, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she just started. So she went to graduate school. She went to undergraduate. She went to graduate school. Um, she did a lot of self-healing through art. And um, yeah, she's, she's very well, she's very self-actualized. Yeah, I love that. Um, what would you want to say to parents of children who might be suffering um, about mental health, mental illness? In I children? think that it's just so important to get help. And I would say, you know, it's not your fault. You don't have to. It's not something that you have to. You know, the best thing you can do for your child is just to support them and help them, and put your own ego on the side, uh, and and just get them get them help. And if it's not the right therapist, you know, the first one 
then find another one. If it's the second one is not right, then find a third one. You know, there is somebody that can help and there'll be a good match. And I think that um, when they start to feel better, you'll know, you know, they are getting better. Yeah, you know, the other thing I've been thinking about, both from what Bridget, you said, and also from the mother angle, you know, is the validation of emotions or the asking about emotions, at least in how children are doing, Um, you know, because Pamela, in our conversation earlier, you were saying that culture may dictate how one does not communicate around emotions and emotional health. And Bridget, I was wondering if you had been asked or someone had noticed or it was normalized to have anxiety how would you have communicated differently and maybe connected with a parent on that? Mm. Do you mean like if someone had asked me about how I was feeling at that age, how I would have connected differently? Yeah. And I don't know what the culture was like in your family, but if there was a (laughs) culture of emotional health, right. Being, being able to talk about emotions and get that energy out of your body as a child, right. Instead of keeping it in, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, growing up in, um, remote Australia in the 90s um, it was also like emotions weren't really talked about and if they were they were kind of made jokes of like we spent a lot of time kind of making fun of each other for our feelings but like in a kind-hearted way but it also didn't leave any space for like feelings to actually be uh, processed and to be made sense of so yeah I definitely look back and I'm like yeah I you know I think my parents did the best they could with what they had but there was definitely a lot of learning I had to do as a grown up on my own. Um, but yeah, I think as a kid, I just would have, I would have loved to have been asked like, what, like what's going on? Are you okay? Like, why, why are you afraid to like sleep at other people's houses and like, you know, start to, and it wasn't like anything bad had happened, but I think it was maybe hormones growing up all of a sudden, everything just like changed. And yeah, I think that if I had have been asked and then, I think therapy would have helped definitely from a much younger age. And yeah, I think also like knowing that there's space for my emotions in the family. I was always very, very afraid of like my emotions setting someone off or like just upsetting things and being a nuisance. And again, this was, I was quite a sensitive child. (laughs) And so like, I, I think just having the space to actually be able to feel and express and channel my emotions at that age would have been quite useful um i've just certainly found that to be a very useful thing to do yes. as an adult <laughs> yeah you know there's there's also um mark brackett who is the head of the yale center for emotional intelligence and he has something he uses in schools called the mood meter and it's really a way of differentiating and describing emotions and feelings And, you know, I think this is the new wave of education and it's something called the ruler program and they're using it in schools where kids are taught, you know, instead of like, if they hit someone, it's like, oh, well, what were you feeling? Like, you know, what caused this? And it's kids are are being trained a little bit more on their emotional side, which I think is is great. I mean, that's that's a benefit of our our time now. No, I agree with you. The amount of time. So I, I quit um, all substances nearly two years ago. And like the amount of time in my recovery, I have thought, 
I wish someone taught this in school. <laughs> like I, I came into recovery with no access to my emotions. I had no idea what I was feeling any time. I felt just so numb and so out of my own body. And I've, you know, very quickly I settled back in and started to learn what that felt like. But yeah, I really feel like this should be taught in schools from a very young age. And it's really awesome to hear that it actually is. Yeah, even with my five-year-old, you know, it's a different language and you've probably heard of socio-emotional learning and there's many other frameworks. Um, but there's someone I follow on Instagram, actually. Her name is Dr. Becky at home. I don't know if you know her, but she has these great um, little videos about, you know, when your child is having a tantrum, for example, and they're angry, how do you set boundaries? And like, you know, you, you, what you say or her advice is like, you say, you know what, it's okay to feel angry at me because you don't like my rule, but I have to keep things safe. So this is still my rule, you know, and this is what's wrong and this is what's right. So it's a very different approach than even perhaps what I experienced or what Pamela, you experienced growing up which was not the validation of the emotional state, right? The, the complete allowance of like, yes, you can be angry and that's okay, but how you express it matters. You can't hit your sister or brother, right? But you can talk, you can talk through it and that talking through it feels good. That's so, so, I mean, you know, I also with full disclosure, you know, I passed on a lot of the traits that I grew up with to my kids. <laughs> so COVID has also, you know, really made me, reflect upon that and you know I've been fully supportive of them you know healing those kind of you know toxic generational patterns um you know it wasn't as bad it got a little diffused but I think that you know I definitely didn't say you know it's okay to be angry or you know I, I don't think that I was as curious about you know when the kids would get upset I was you know, three kids getting dressed for school, running out the door, you know, you're really rushed. And I just was like, okay, just put your clothes on. We got to go. Um, yeah. You know, there wasn't a lot of time to pause. So I think COVID, you know, this slowing down also, it has just been incredibly helpful in some ways for people's um, recognizing their emotional, their feelings. I agree. And the good news is like, of course, you're going to carry forward things that you learned from your parents. You're, we're wired because of who we are biologically, but also in our environment. So of course, we're going to carry that forward. But the good news is that if we talk more about mental health and, and learn a different way forward, we can also change the way we influence young people around Absolutely. us. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed that clip, but Bridget, I want to go back to you now that I have you one-on-one -on -one and ask you a little bit more about your family. Let's talk about emotions, culture, what you experienced vis-a-vis -vis what you know now about your mental health journey. I think it's, this is something I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about because like, you know, we are products of where we grow up and a lot, a lot of culture culture affects us in a way that a lot of times we have no control over. And it's not until we kind of move out of our culture into a different culture that we kind of realize how different the world is from all different corners. Like, you know, I moved to America when I was 16 and it was a big change. And since then I've lived in Europe and I've traveled to all the continents except Antarctica. And like, I've seen kind of, about the time I was 18, I'd traveled that much. And I'd seen just such a wide variety of ways to be a human. 
I guess. And, you know, it got me thinking a lot about the way I was raised. I, you know, I had a happy childhood and, you know, I, I, my parents did the best they could for sure. You know, I definitely am not, you know, I was never deprived. I grew up with a lot of love around me and I always knew that I was loved, but that doesn't mean that like whenever, you know, I was also a really sensitive kid. Like I, I really was. I, Look, looking back now, I'm like, yeah, I needed a lot. <laughs> um, I was a very anxious kid and I had a lot of feelings and I also had a lot of different things inside of me that I did not know what to do with at that age. And, you know, when I kind of asked for help, for whatever reason, it didn't really come. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time as an adult thinking back on that and I'm like, how much of that can I really be resentful for? Because, like, how much of it is a reflection of the people around me but then how much of the people around me are a reflection of the culture they grew up in. Um, I don't know if I'm making much sense here, but this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, a lot of time talking about. Um, and I guess today with it, I've just accepted the fact that, you know, my people, the people around me as a kid, they were doing the best they could with what they had. Um, and that's kind of all I can really take away from it. What do you think would have helped perhaps prevent the emotional journey that you experience later, the harder parts of it. It really links back to Pamela's conversation. There was no space for emotions in my house. Like I, I remember, you know, if I had emotions other than happy and I wasn't a very outgoing kid, I, I was very introverted. I still am very introverted, but I was, I grew up in a house full of extroverts. So it was, you know, if I, I didn't kind of fit in with that vibe, you know, it wasn't that I would make like be mocked, but you know, a lot of jokes were made at my expense. And, you know, as a kid, I kind of learned to brush it off, which I now like, that's also Australian culture. It's very like larrikin, like, come on, you can keep going, like no worries. And, and now looking back, I'm like, wow, I actually really, I did need a little bit more. I needed a little bit more reassurance that I was okay. I needed more space to be held when, you know, I was starting to, when I was 12 onwards, like I, I needed more. And I don't know if it's that my family around me deliberately didn't give me it. I think that if they knew how to, they would have, you know, they're good people. And I know in their hearts, like they love me and only wanted me to be happy. I think for me as a kid growing up, I knew that I wasn't like other kids and that's not to say that I was like special or different in like any, you know, I was a very normal kid, but inside of me, I felt very different. And I think that growing up in a culture where anything inside of you was kind of told to be put aside, I, I learned to fear the parts of me that weren't normal, quote unquote. Um, and now as an adult, I've completely embraced and accepted all parts of me. And it's, I feel completely happy and at peace and, okay now but and I think also though this may have been less of a culture and also just a time like growing up in the 90s in Western Australia like it was a very different time. But it's interesting you were taught or you heard through social norms or conditioning or just the environment that this part of you was not tolerable that this part of you should just be put away over here and then my question as a psychiatrist is like well was that what was that about is that culture or is that just your family or someone not tolerating that part of you or something they took issue with because of who they are, right? Which is often a case. So, but when we have a consistent 
parental figure influencing us in a certain way. It conditions us to then hide that part that is not getting approval, let's say. And I'm extrapolating from what you're saying. But but I think then the point is, given our influences, we're all a product of who's around us when we're younger. How do we become ourselves as we mature into adulthood and take all of the parts of us and not worry about approval, but just authentically be able to express ourselves. I think that's another goal of emotional health that, you know, a lot of people are trying to achieve or struggle with those parts that are more hidden and haven't been pulled out delicately or, you know, authentically. Yeah. I I mean, I would agree with you. And for me, I didn't, I wasn't able to have make peace with myself and accept myself until I, I quit drinking, until I quit the eating disorder, until I, you know, got on Prozac, until I finally had you know, and I had a, a really good, balanced, healthy home life, like until I was in a place where it seemed like I was ready to kind of make peace with that. But also at that point, I was able to make peace with it because I had people in my life who like kind of held the space for me for, to just step into it and to kind of be like, no, it's okay. Like you're allowed to be however you want to be. Like, here you go. It's actually awesome. Like lean in. And then it became just like a self-fulfilling prophecy where I was like, oh, it feels so much better <laughs> living like this. I'm going to just keep going. And I, I initially in the early days when I was still terrified and still kind of really uncomfortable with myself and not able to, you know, it just I kind of repeated to myself over and over and over again. I was like, well, you can keep going until it stops feeling good. Like just keep going until, you know, it hurts you basically. And like you have full permission to stop then. And it, it just hasn't. So I, I guess I gave myself the space to move into it, but yeah, I, I, it took a lot of support. It took a lot of help. Like I, I, I couldn't do it myself. So Bridget, just, you know, just to close our conversation, you know, we, we were talking about emotional health all the way to suicide prevention. One of the, one of the most serious aspects of mental health. And, you know, when I think about what we're doing, we're talking about prevention, so a first step is really working on emotional health, just like we work on our physical health with going to the gym or nutrition or taking care of ourselves in that way. Emotional health is something to be worked on. It requires a little bit of an investment, you know, in looking at it and being mindful and working on figuring out what your reactions are and when things are peaking and really overwhelming to really address it, just like a medical need. It is medical, mental health is medical, but just like any other medical need, if you have a rash or if you break your leg or if you have something coming up, pain, you would go to the doctor and address it. If you have painful emotional experiences, go to the doctor like you would address the other things. So for me, that's the takeaway here. You know, work on your emotional health. Listen to our podcast. You know, if you want a private space to do that, connect with the Mental Health Coalition. They have so many resources out there for what you might be looking for based on your context. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately.
What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.